because I forget everything, and uh, Facebook is doing a really good job of reminding me of things that have happened in the past. And so I just learned, which I wouldn't have remembered on my own, that this week was eight years since I packed two bags and moved to Africa for a year. Um, I know, wow. Wow, because it feels like yesterday and also feels like 20 years ago. Um, but it was eight years ago, and it was this awesome adventure that Jesus took me on. Um, and I packed a couple bags. I got on a plane. God made it happen so fast that I, I almost couldn't see what was happening in enough time to second-guess myself or stop and say, are you seriously moving to Africa by yourself? Um, so I, I sat on the plane, and as we took off, it was like God let me see that for the first time, and I had a slight panic attack um, and left for a year. Um, when I got there, I was acutely aware of the fact that I was American. Um, I don't know if other cultures feel this way or if it's just us Americans, but I feel like you go other places and uh, either you realize very quickly that you're American or everyone else around you realizes very quickly that you're American, for better or worse. Um, but a couple of things that were true about this experience. I was well aware the entire time that no matter how long I was there, I was not South African. There were so many things that contributed to me being aware all the time, constantly, that no, ma no matter how much it felt like a type of home, it was not home. The food was not our food. It was an interesting experience. The language, uh, only one of the 11 official languages was familiar to me. The rest of them had clicks and weird stuff going on that I couldn't understand. Um, values, uh, the way that they do things. You get to another country and you drive on what we believe is the wrong side of the road, on the wrong side of the car, shifting gears with the wrong hand, and you know you're not at home. Um, having to tell yourself, uh, what is it? Now I'm going to get it wrong. A big, big right, little left, when you're turning, you're always constantly almost turning onto the wrong side of the street, which I'm not going to say I didn't do a couple of times. And those people knew that I was American immediately as they're honking at me. Um, but I knew acutely all of the time um, that I was a foreigner. I was a stranger. I was an alien. I was not from there. But I lived there. I had an apartment. I had a job. I went to the grocery store. There were things that were true about my life existing in Africa, um, but I was not South African. And no matter how long I lived there, I was not one of them. We've been talking about being kingdom people, what it looks like to be a people of God's kingdom. Um, and I feel like sometimes that gets confusing. And some of us that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, we talk about it like it's very clear, like, whoa, we're kingdom people. We're citizens of another kingdom. And if I'm brand new and I'm just getting to know this Jesus, I'm thinking, I don't know what kingdom you're seeing, but it it's invisible to me and I don't understand. Um, and so the best way that I can think to communicate what it looks like to be kingdom people living here on this earth um, is something like my experience in Africa. And if you are here and you are not American and you are living here, you get this concept a lot more than the Americans sitting next to you, right? That you come with a certain set of values and lifestyle and a language uh, and a culture that there's part of you that you want to keep while you're here. You want to keep that. You want to pass it on to your kids. Um, and so as being citizens of the kingdom, when we say yes to Jesus, when we live, give our lives to God, um, we switch citizenship. We switch allegiances um, from, the Bible calls it, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from this earthly kingdom to the kingdom of heaven. We are all of a sudden given this new citizenship, and your identity is now not found in your earthly citizenship, not in your passport or your green card or your birth certificate, but the fact that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Are you tracking? 
I love verbal confirmation. Thank you, front row. Back row, get me next time. Um, so we are here on earth, but we recognize that when we are in Christ, this place is not our home. This culture is not ours. The values of this place are not ours. We belong somewhere else. And so our values as being citizens of the kingdom are constantly at war with the values of this world, right? It's as if the kingdom of heaven colonized here on earth and we are those colonies. A colony being an island of one culture in the midst of another culture. A place where the values of home are told and lived and maintained in the midst of a foreign land. So as we talk about the kingdom of God and what it looks like to live as citizens of that kingdom, it's important to remember that although we live here, now in this place, on earth with its own set of values and language and lifestyle, we are no longer who we once were. We're a part of God's kingdom, and we're living out that kingdom here on earth. Do we all understand now kingdom of God? Yes, we are here. We are not from here, but we are here. We are in the world, but not of the world. So this morning, um, we've been talking about our, our teaching series for the year is going to be kingdom people. And we've been talking about the kingdom and different characteristics of the kingdom, what kind of kingdom the kingdom of heaven is like. Um, and so I got, a, I got the gift of being able to talk about the kingdom of heaven being a kingdom of grace. Again, I got the best topic. Um, so turn with me to your Bibles to Ephesians. Ephesians 2. For those of you flipping, it's between Galatians and Philippians. If you have my Bible, it's page 765. That's not helpful. Ephesians 2. So we are going to read um, a passage together, and then we'll pull it apart a little bit. So read with me verse um, 1 through 9. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of this body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right, so we're going to unpack this. Verses 1 through 3, it talks about who we once were, right? Our old citizenship. You were once dead, you were once uh, an heir to, to this world and all of the depravity that comes with it. You were once in darkness, but now in Christ, when we say yes to Jesus, when we switch our allegiances, when we say, I no longer want to be of this world, I want to be in your kingdom, he now t transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and we are no longer what we once were. Verse 4, um, Kenny always talks about the but gods in the Bible. We make a big deal about these but gods because it's in the but gods that we see that what something was, God saw and decided to act and do something about it. He decided to interfere on our behalf. And so verse 4 says, but God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So we're going to park there for a minute. As we talk about a kingdom, there's certain characteristics of a kingdom. We don't live in a monarchy. We don't live in a kingdom, per se. Um, so we're a little bit removed from the language. But one thing that is true about the kingdom is, about a kingdom is that there is a king, right? Kingdoms have kings or queens. Um, our kingdom has a king. Um, and our kingdom has a gracious king. It's the first point in your bulletin. Our kingdom has a gracious king. Um, this, you might just write in that word gracious and be like, yep, check, I know God's gracious. Let's just park for a second. Our king, the king who rules all, who is over all, who has all power and all authority, who can do whatever he wants, who is also perfect and holy and righteous, he characterizes himself as a gracious king. Grace, if you are unfamiliar or if you need a refresher course, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is receiving from God that which you do not deserve and have not earned. So grace is nothing to do with you and everything to do with the person giving the grace. Does that make sense? So our God, our king, the one whose authority we are under, he could be a lot of things. He describes himself as gracious. Um, we're going to put up on the screen for you so you don't have to flip. But Exodus 34, verse 6 to the first part of 7, says, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When God is choosing to reveal himself and say what kind of God he is, what he is about, he chooses to tell that he is gracious, that he is abounding in love that is steadfast. It is unwavering. He is always for us. He is always rooting for us. He is always standing by us, waiting for us to give him an opportunity to extend us grace. God longs to be gracious with his people. He longs to be gracious. Uh, Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah 30, I didn't write the verse in my notes, sorry. But in Isaiah 30, it says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. That word waits, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious. It can be translated to long, to stand ready and available to look forward expectantly, to stay in a place of expectation. Can you imagine God is longing? He's standing next to you saying, I want to be gracious to you. Would you allow me to be gracious to you? Would you accept my grace? So we have this gracious God. We live in this kingdom. The king is a king of grace. He sees his people. There is a problem. There is a brokenness there. Raise your hand if you're broken. Just kidding. You don't have to because everyone's hand should go up. And if your hand doesn't go up, I don't want you to be embarrassed for being wrong. But everybody is broken. We are broken. We are messed up. God sees there is a problem. Sin has come into the world. Sin has separated us from our perfect holy father. And God wants to remedy that. He stands by and he doesn't say, I am only just and so sorry guilty 
he stands by and says, I want to be gracious to you. And so he makes a way. And that way, what is that way? Who is that way? Just wanted to feel like I was in Sunday school for a minute. Jesus is always the answer, right? Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate extravagant embodiment of God's grace. If you think of grace as being something that God possesses, when Jesus comes in the form of a man, God, God almost takes all of his grace and says, this is what my grace looks like. This person and what he will do and who he will be is the perfect representation of my grace, of what I long to give you. God's heart is so um, inclined towards being gracious to us that he would send his own son to come and die so that we might be reconciled to him. Titus 2.11 says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus is the grace of God. What is conceptual in the word grace is actualized in the person and work of Christ. Does that make sense? The way that God was going to show the world his ultimate display of grace was going to be through the person and work of Christ. So we have this gracious God. We have this king. We have um, this father. And he sees that his children are broken. And instead of bringing judgment and instead of inflicting punishment, his heart is turned towards the desire to be gracious to you and to make a way where there is not a way, where there was not a way before. And that way is Jesus. So, that is our king. How are you guys feeling about our king? Well, he feels a lot more excited about you than apparently you are about him right now. We'll get there. I'm going to ask that question again at the end, and we're going to respond a little bit better. All right, so we've got this king, and he is grace embodied. He is the one who makes all things possible to us, who gives us life, who transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, this king that we get to serve. Second aspect of a kingdom, you have a king. If you have a kingdom and a king and no people, who are you a king over? You guys are good. No one. So a kingdom also includes people. There are subjects in a kingdom, right? So we are a kingdom with a gracious king and then a kingdom full of people, of subjects that are marked with God's grace. The defining characteristic for a citizen of the kingdom is that they are somebody who is covered in the grace of God. The only reason that they are in that kingdom to begin with is because they're covered in the grace of God. So the defining characteristic about every single person, how diverse this world is, and all of the different struggles and gifts that we all have, the uniting factor for every person in the kingdom of God is that they are there by grace. Nothing allows broken people to become kingdom people except grace. There is nothing you can do to transfer yourself into God's kingdom. There's nothing you can do to transfer yourself out of it. It is grace that grabs you and pulls you and holds you in that kingdom. The middle part of our passage, the end part of our passage, it said, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. We are saved 
by grace alone. So often I feel like I just need to work harder and get better. And I hear, I read the Bible and it tells me that I, I do these things and don't do these things. And I'm like, man, I do these things and I don't do these things. Like I got to work harder. I got to get better at this. I got to clean myself up more. And God is standing next to me, longing to be gracious to me. Saying, what I want is for you to stop trying to plan and strategize how to clean yourself up. And I want you to sit at my feet and let me be gracious to you. Because we are covered by grace, we are free to walk in grace. Because we are no longer under the law where freedom looks like I have to follow every letter of the law. We are under grace that looks like you just be. You are mine. You are covered by my grace. Now you just live as that. People of the kingdom are not people who need to walk in shame in bondage, in striving. It's grace. Everything about the culture that we live in as a colony of citizens of heaven tells us we need to try harder. And when we fall, shame, 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 guilt. Just imagine that you have this father who's standing beside you and he is longing to be gracious to you. He is longing to instill this value of the kingdom that is grace upon grace upon grace when the world is condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. As we talk about grace and we talk about the freedom to walk in grace, I had a, an interesting conversation with a friend of mine um, and we were talking about grace and she's just met Jesus for the first time and she was ta talking about forgiveness, and she was asking questions, and I was explaining, just ask Jesus for forgiveness, and then move along. You ask for forgiveness, and you turn, and you keep going. She's like, but, like, what do you have to do? Like, you ask for forgiveness, and then what, and so then what do you do? Like, do you have to, like, what do you have to do? And I was like, then you just, you just keep going. She said, that just sounds, that just sounds too cheap. I was like, you don't even know that you are quoting a German theologian, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. We won't get into it, don't worry. I'm not going to nerd out too much. But <laughs> it's true. Um, your point C is a really important point. Grace that is cheap leads to license. Grace that is cheap leads to license. So as I sit here and I stand here and I say, grace. Grace, it is grace, it is God's grace on you. God stands beside you and he longs to be gracious to you. So when you fall down, he's like, get up, let's keep going. If that is cheap to you, it becomes license. Oh, well, God's going to forgive me. He knows I'm just human. I'm a work in progress. When we, when we shrug off sin and when we shrug off struggle like that, that grace becomes cheap. Do you understand what I'm saying? It becomes cheap. Then it's just, it's licensed. Do whatever you want and you're covered by grace. Just go do whatever you want, you're covered by grace. It's, there's a part of it that's true. 
you're covered by grace. But you're not understanding grace if that's the way that you view it. Grace that is costly leads to repentance. When we understand grace and what it costs, our gracious, loving Father King, when we understand that to have grace extended to us to the extent that it has been required his son to come and die, when we get that, when we realize this Father's heart sends his son to die and says, I love you so much, I'm going to do this so that you can have grace. When we're overwhelmed by the cost of that grace, man, I'm not going out and treating it like it's cheap. Now it's not, well, grace, 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 grace. Now it's grace, grace. And now when I violate that grace, when I violate my loving father who's standing beside me longing to be gracious to me, gosh, my heart is turned towards repentance and not justification or excuses. And we so downplay repentance as an American church. We like to clean ourselves up and so the solution to your problem is stop doing that and start doing this and get going. The solution to your problem is stop, fall on your knees, repent, tell God I have violated your covenant of grace that I didn't deserve to begin with. And I fall at your feet because you have given everything so that I might have grace. And I long to give myself to you. Are you tracking? Is this making sense? You guys are just really up on this verbal affirmation thing. I am so into it. All right, point C was my favorite point, so if you need to tune out, now you can. I'm just kidding. There's so much more. So properly understood, grace does not lead to tolerance of sin, but to the fear of God and to turning away from sin. It brings salvation that changes us. We had read Titus 2.11 before, and we're going to read just past it. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all the people, right? Jesus is the, the embodiment of the grace of God. But why? Bring salvation, and what else does it do, God's grace? Trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So it is not just that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. That is just the first piece. Grace of God appears and offers you salvation and we say yes to Jesus. And what costly grace does through humility and repentance and having the grace of God at the forefront of our mind and how much it costs the sobering reality of what that grace is, it then trains us to live differently, not out of compulsion, not out of obligation, but because we are so moved and overwhelmed by the overwhelming grace of God that it changes us. It changes us. So it's not grace that stops at salvation. It is grace that continues on through sanctification and growth becoming more intimately acquainted with our Father. So a kingdom has a king, has subjects, has a mission, has something that it stands for, has something that it's fighting for. 
our kingdom, the kingdom of our gracious Father, is a kingdom with a mission of grace. Um, the, the mission of the kingdom of God is not to go into the world and find people that are m- screwing up and tell them that they're screwing up. The mission of the kingdom of God is not to go into the world and uh, tell everybody what sin they're committing and how they're committing it and that they should stop. It is the Holy Spirit's job to meet people in their journeys, in their process, convict them of their sin, and bring their heart to repentance. It is our job to represent our gracious Father. Sometimes, um, as believers, we are very quick to receive grace right? We hear about God's grace, and we're like, I, I got that. I get that. I'm all about this. Let's worship. I'm done. Let's worship. We are not so great at extending it. I am not great at extending grace. I don't extend grace to others very well. I do not extend grace to myself, hardly at all. That's a rare occurrence, mostly when my therapist tells me to. That is a true story. I just got real right there. What we need to remember is that God's grace is sufficient for everyone. His grace is sufficient for everyone. You need to hear that God's grace is sufficient for you. You also need to hear God's grace is sufficient for this person and this person and this person and this person. Paul and Peter both uh, mentioned that we are stewards of God's grace. They talk about us being stewards of God's grace. This means that we have received it. It's been given to us. It's been entrusted to us. And then there's also an element of we then go and we give it out to others. We are really good at taking it and hoarding it. And keeping it for ourselves. But everyone else gets judgment. Clean yourself up. Get it together. And I'm not just talking about, like, in deep, heavy, heartfelt situations. I'm talking about, like, in line at the grocery store. It's pretty, Dale thinks it's deep. I do, too. I do, too. I was just trying to downplay it for you. But, yes, the person in front of me that has 1,900 coupons, and I'm like, who even clips coupons anymore? I don't even know where you find them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, just pay the extra 19 cents. This is taking forever. I'll give you $5 to throw away your coupons. I have no grace on that coupon clipper. In case you can't tell how close to the surface that story was readily available, it happened this week, and I was like, oh my gosh. Also, can I get that other coupon there? Someone driving. Oh my gosh. You forget to push the gas as soon as the green light goes. You know you're in L.A. when, right? I've had to tell myself, like, the horn is for emergencies only. (laughs) 
You can keep laughing. It's a real struggle, and you know it is. <laughs> it's little things of how are we communicating the kingdom that we are citizens of. Impatience, intolerance, incredibly, being incredibly unloving, having no grace for that coworker who just gets on our nerves. And the people who don't know Jesus have no grace with her. And here you are, not of their kingdom, of a different kingdom. And gosh, we still struggle with it, right? It's a struggle. But when all of a sudden we think about it as stewards of God's grace, we've been given all of this grace by God. And he says, now go out and show people who I am. When people expect rejection, we offer grace. We often have a misguided idea that we are responsible for cleaning other people up, and we're not. We're not. The degree to which we extend grace is roughly correlated with the degree to which we understand our own desperate need for grace. So if I am not aware of the fact that I need grace, if I think I'm good and I've got it together, I'm not really that aware that this person really needs it. I'm probably a lot more stingy. But if I am somebody who I recognize how costly this grace was and how undeserving I am to have it by doing nothing of my own, unmerited, unworthy, all of a sudden I am humbled by the fact that, gosh, I don't deserve any of this. Who am I to withhold? Who am I to receive all this grace from God and him look at me and say, you are undeserving and sinful and yet I love you so much that I will give you my son and make you right with me and give you all of the grace that I possess. And then we turn around and we don't extend it very well. I want to be somebody and I know that I am not this. So if you know me well and you're like, do you hear yourself, Brittany? I do. Don't worry. I'm hearing myself. I want to be somebody that people define as gracious. I want to be somebody where they're like, gosh, she just keeps extending me grace. I don't want to be somebody where they think, gosh, like I can't do anything right. I, uh, I had lunch, I had actually a whole wonderful day yesterday with a couple of women, um, a woman that I got connected with through our denomination and a young woman who's a missionary in Germany and this woman thought that we'd be, it was like, you know, it was like a, a setup, a friend setup. I was all excited. I was like, what am I going to wear? We went, and I met them in uh, San Clemente, and it was like the sun was shining. We sat on the water for lunch, and it was amazing. And these two unbelievable women of God that I just got to spend the whole day with, and it was like fresh life breathed into my soul. And they were asking me what I was going to teach on, and so we were talking about it. And it was so great to verbally process it through with somebody because one of the women brought up a point, and she said, yeah, gosh, but sometimes it's hard to extend grace because we don't understand what extending grace looks like sometimes. And I was like, yeah, that's true, because I think what happens oftentimes in a Christian context is we think what extending grace looks like um, looks a little bit more like codependency. Looks a little bit more like, okay, well, grace, I forgive you again. Okay, well, I forgive you again okay, well, I just got to keep forgiving them as they keep bulldozing me over and over and over again, and we become doormats, right? That, that can't be what God's talking about, right? And I don't believe it is. So as we were talking it through, I was trying to figure out, oh, okay, you know, processing and 
what does that look like? And I was like, gosh, this is so at the surface of my own life right now, this process. And I didn't even realize it. I'd already prepped my whole message, and it was in this conversation that I thought, gosh, the application is so, so present in my life right now. Um, there is a certain individual in my life um, at this moment who has just really um, violated um, the love and trust of our relationship um, in incredibly destructive ways, incredibly hurtful and painful ways um, that will have lasting consequences. Um, things that me extending grace will not, it won't clean it up for them. Um, and I've wrestled and other people that love this individual have wrestled with um, what it looks like to, to extend grace. Um, we've had conversations about does it look like just saying we forgive you and so everything goes back to normal now? Um, does it look like saying we no longer have a relationship? I, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I'm not presenting this story because I have the answer. Um, the reason why I am sharing this story is because I feel like God has taught me a lot about what grace looks like and what it doesn't necessarily look like. Um, how grace extended to others gets flushed out in our lives, it doesn't look the same in every situation. Um, so for me, with this individual, I am still deeply in process with this, and, and I don't know. And the prayer of my heart is that God helps me figure out what extending his kind of grace looks like to this person. But what I have realized um, is that uh, if I were to approach this person and say, I have grace on you, we're going to move on from this and keep going forward, although your heart has not changed, and you are still an incredibly unsafe person to let into deep spaces in my heart, um, that, that would be, one, foolish. Um, and two, I, I don't think that that is how God wants to reach this person. We see in the Bible, sometimes God's grace on us doesn't look like him getting in front of us and saying, stop! Sometimes it does, and I am grateful for those moments. I am only up here today for moments like that when God got me, saved me from myself. There are other times, though, when God's grace looks like him saying, you can go. I'm going to let you choose this. And I have to believe that that breaks the Father's heart more than it breaks my heart. So what I'm saying is, sometimes I think the fleshing out of this extending of grace looks much less like what we do to somebody else and much more like what we allow God to do in our own hearts. So for me, if I sit back and I think about this individual, this individual that doesn't know Jesus, this individual who doesn't know grace and freedom and wholeness and unconditional love, this person who has an entirely different set of circumstances in their life than I do, actually not entirely, but in part, I think, can I say that if I was this person with all of these things going on and all of these things playing into their story and their position, can I say, without a shadow of a doubt, that I would not be making the same decisions as them? I can't say it. Because without Jesus, I don't know what I would be like, and I don't want to know. So what God is doing in my heart is, is turning my heart in a gracious posture towards this person 
But what that does not look like is you are allowed back into this safe space in my heart because you're not safe. Does that distinction make sense? So I'll invite the worship team back up. We've talked about a lot of things this morning. If we're going to take something away today, what I want us to take away is a couple of key things. One, when we say yes to Jesus, we are a part of a kingdom where the king who is ruling and reigning longs to be gracious to you. It's not plan B. It's not... It's not the next option if being harsh and judgmental doesn't work. He longs to be gracious to you. As recipients of that grace, our understanding of how much this costs the Father to extend this grace to us and how much he loves us should not lead us to license. It should lead us to repentance. And as we're faced with our own desperate need for that grace and on our face before God in repentance, what it should also motivate our heart to do is extend that grace to others. Sometimes in action and sometimes in heart posture. I want to close this morning with a passage from Hebrews that some of us will be familiar with, but I want us to read this with fresh eyes, if that's possible. Hebrews 4, 16. In light of everything we've talked about this morning, the, writer of the, he- uh, the letter to the Hebrews says, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, the throne that our gracious King sits on, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're going to move into a time of responding. We're going to have an opportunity, each of us in our seats, on our feet, wherever you are, to with confidence draw near to this throne of grace, the throne that sits there with a king on it that longs to be gracious. We have a couple of questions I'm going to put on the screen, and during this first song, I'm just going to ask that You can stand up and worship and close your eyes. You can sit down and just read the questions. Do we have the questions? We don't have them. I'm going to tell them to you, and you're going to remember. Just think about this. Often we, we hear something, and we get up, and we walk out, and I want the Holy Spirit to have space to work in our hearts because what he wants to do in your hearts is really beautiful and life changing, but we often don't give him space to do that. We just keep going. So we're going to have some time to reflect. Three questions. One, how has God been gracious to me? All of us, even if we're in a hard season, there are ways that God has been gracious to you right now. And the worry and the anxiety and the hardship of this world will overwhelm us if we do not continue to look to how our Father has been gracious and how he is being gracious now in the midst of our circumstances. Two, In what ways do I need to repent? What do I need to come before God and say, gosh, I have made your grace cheap. I don't want to live in this anymore. I want to bring it to my Father who longs to be gracious to me. Number three, how is God calling me to extend grace to others? You might be sitting here and it is like nagging in your head that you know exactly that person that the Holy Spirit is putting it on your heart. 
that he wants to create a heart posture of graciousness towards them. The answer is not to now be more gracious. The answer is to take it to your father and to ask him to transform your heart so that you might extend grace whatever way that looks like in that particular situation. So how has God been gracious to you? How do I need to repent? How is God calling me to extend that grace? We're going to take some time. Be with the Lord in this first song. Um, and we're going to take communion as we're, we're doing every week now. Um, so we're going to have some time in this first song, and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in communion.